so good to be with you this morning, to pray together, to sing together, to listen to God's Word uh, read together, and now to open God's Word and study from the book of Galatians. Uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we're just continuing on our study through the book. Uh, so now we come to Galatians 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Uh, verses 1 through 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find today's passage on page 973. 973. Uh, and, and if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can just read for yourself, feel free to just take one of the ones under the chair as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own personal copy of God's Word to read and to study uh, on your own. Uh, so please feel more than welcome to uh, take one of those Bibles for yourself. Uh, up to this point in the book, Paul, writing to Christian churches in Galatia, has urgently communicated his concerns to them because they are falling prey to false teaching. That bad teaching specifically, uh, as we read about in chapter 2, was the requirement for Gentiles who were becoming Christians to... Uh, adhere to the Mosaic law. Uh, one example specifically mentioned was uh, that the Jews were requiring Gentile Christians to receive circumcision, uh, implying, of course, that adherence to the whole law was still required uh, in order to be considered part of the people of God. Uh, Paul does not tiptoe around this issue, uh, but calls it a false gospel in chapter 1, he says there is only one message of salvation, and it is by grace through faith in Christ. Therefore, to believe in Jesus while requiring additional law observance is to add to the gospel and to distort the gospel, changing the message completely. It changed the message of one, from, one of salvation by grace through faith to grace plus works. We must make ourselves righteous by following the law. Paul's so concerned that he tells them that if he or even an angel of heaven preaches a different message than the one that he originally preached, uh, he tells them to let that person be accursed. Well, the influence of these false brothers that Paul uh, is concerned about is so strong uh, that Paul has gone at length in kind of an autobiography to explain why his message is from God and how it has not been influenced by men, no matter their authority. Uh, that was the point of telling them about his trip to Jerusalem to the other apostles. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul makes the argument that sons of Abraham are not those who follow the law as was previously thought, but rather those who share in the faith of Abraham. Let's read our passage together now uh, to see in what ways the Galatians were deceived, were tempted to be deceived, so that we might learn how to guard our own lives from making the same mistakes. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 9. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The primary question that Paul poses to them is essentially this. Do you owe your salvation to your works of the law or to believing the gospel that you heard? He asks a number of rhetorical questions uh, to get his point across, but the major theme is this uh, works versus faith based uh, when it comes to the issue of righteousness. And uh, you'll hear the word righteousness, righteousness a lot as we go through Galatians and in this sermon. Uh, sometimes that word can be translated as justice or to justify. Uh, I like to think of it as rightness or fitness before God. Uh, so righteousness before God, fitness. God declaring someone righteous is declaring them fit before him. Uh, we'll talk more about that in time. But this whole discussion, he started back in chapter 2, verse 16. Well, the main idea for these verses is this. Don't be fooled into trusting in works-based righteousness. You have the Spirit, and you have the Scriptures. Therefore, trust God. I'll say that again. I think the main idea from these nine verses could be summarized this way. Don't be fooled into trusting in works-based righteousness. You have the Spirit, and you have the Scriptures. Therefore, trust God. I think those are Paul's two primary arguments for the Galatians or proofs that he gives them. Uh, and they apply for us today as well. Uh, so I want to spend our time this morning thinking about those two things, the Spirit and the Scriptures, as presented here in this passage. Uh, my prayer is that you would be even more confident in your salvation uh, because it is not dependent on your works. And if you are tempted, as the Galatians were, to wrongly emphasize works in this life, I hope this passage helps you rightly emphasize the role of grace in Christ. So first, you have the Spirit, point one. Don't be fooled, you have the Spirit. Uh, this is the answer to Paul's first rhetorical question in verse 2. Uh, but before we get to verse 2, just notice what Paul says before making his arguments in verse 1. He calls them foolish. And not just foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, Paul feels quite strongly about this. Uh, he's overwhelmed with how they have turned to believe a different gospel. Uh, they've believed something that labels them as fools. And in this particular case, I don't think... It's the thing that they believe, meaning I don't think it's just trusting in your works uh, that necessarily uh, makes them foolish. It's the Christian who has found freedom from the law turning back to the law after experiencing that freedom. 
Remember last week we discussed the end of chapter 2 in which Paul says to return to works-based righteousness system is to rebuild what was previously torn down. And I gave you that image of stitching back together that four-inch thick curtain in the temple and hanging it up again after uh, it was torn in two from top to bottom at Christ's death. Paul and the Galatians have graduated from the law. Uh, We have entered a new era in history. They've been freed from slavery under the law and have been made new in Christ. They no longer have to observe it. So why would they put themselves back under into subjection to it? For the Christian who has found grace, freedom, and righteousness apart from the law, it's foolish to resort to a lesser revelation. Uh, Jesus said the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Him. That He is what they point to. So why would we backtrack to the old ways? If you look up at just the last verse of chapter 2, verse 22, you'll see Paul states that to return to law observance is to effectively make Christ's death on the cross meaningless. If we're still required to obey the law, for what purpose did he die? The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin. The law cannot possibly accomplish this because it only reveals sin to us. It holds out that perfect standard to show how short we fall of it. But Jesus, being fully God and fully man, tempted as we are, did not sin. His death, therefore, is the perfect sacrifice or substitution to cover our sins because there was no sin in Him. He laid down His life on His own accord in submission to the will of the Father. Why would He do this for us? Because we have earned enough of His favor? Because we have been good enough according to His law? No, friends. There's no good in us that would cause God to love us this way. He is a perfectly just judge. Therefore, His goodness is displayed in His right punishment of evil, which would normally include us, if not for Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus did not lay down His life because we earned it by obeying the law. He laid His life down because of His love for us. That's why it's called the grace of God. Grace is given freely. We don't deserve it, but we can receive forgiveness by trusting in and believing in Jesus. Paul's calling on the Galatians to remember that fact about their own salvation. To trust in your works of the law instead is not to rely on or trust in Christ. It's to nullify God's grace. It is to functionally say, I don't need it or I don't believe it, or it's not enough. I must also earn God's favor by obeying the law. Instead of recognizing that it was God's love and only God's love that rescued us in the first place. Now notice Paul calls them fools twice, foolish twice at least, verse 1 and verse 3. Uh, Believing the gospel of grace first and then returning to a faith plus works gospel, it's a scandalous mistake. So much so that Paul asks, who bewitched them? It's like as if they've been put under a spell. They've been brainwashed into forgetting about grace completely. 
Now, that's what Paul means when he says in verse 1 that it was before their eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's referring to his own preaching about Jesus to them, which was focused on the crucifixion as a sacrifice for us. They couldn't have possibly mistaken his death to mean anything other than that they were free from the law. That's why Paul is saying they, uh, they witnessed Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. He's not saying that they actually saw Jesus crucified, but the Jesus Paul represented to them and that they believed is not just an example for us to follow. Uh, he's not just a morally good person that uh, we should try to emulate. He's somebody, somebody who not only lived a godly life, but he is the Savior of the world, the Messiah who took upon himself the sins of the world. Look at verse 1 in relation to chapter 2, verse 21. If they clearly perceived the crucifixion of Jesus, how could they possibly treat it as to no purpose? Paul's not the only one who called his disciples foolish. Uh, it might surprise you to know, but Jesus himself, uh, when he appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, said this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 25 through 27. This foolishness that distorts or changes the gospel stems from a lack of belief. This false way of thinking that relies on works instead of Christ is, uh, I think, something that we all do at times in different forms. Uh, for example, we do this uh, when we judge others who are going through seasons of difficulty, uh, assuming it was a result of their own sinful decisions. This is the mistake that Job's friends made, if you read through the book of Job. Uh, we do this when we question our own salvation. Because we don't desire to read God's word or pray or come to church. We don't feel like uh, doing good things, and so we question whether or not we are saved. And I pointed out last week that that's uh, really an overemphasis on your own works and the role of your own works, rather than uh, looking to Christ and his work on the cross. And we do this when we become proud because we love our works when we think of ourselves as better than others, it's really easy to fall into the trap of the Galatian heresy. So how does Paul remind the Galatians of truth? Verse 2, he asks them a question. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the main question he poses to them. Uh, the other five after are all subordinate to this one. But if Paul gets them to understand the right answer to this question, then they no longer will be fooled. And this is where the argument comes in. If you have the Spirit, the Spirit came to you when you heard the gospel and believed. And you can read about the Spirit being poured out into uh, the Gentiles in Acts, uh, specifically Acts 10, uh, Acts 15 as well. It's talked about in the Jerusalem Council. Uh, I think of John the Baptist who said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And then we see that happen in the book of Acts. Well, that happened for the Galatians as well. When they heard the gospel and responded in faith, they received the Holy Spirit. And Paul is basically asking them, did the Spirit come to you because of your works for the law, or did they come to you through hearing and faith? The answer is a resounding. Of course, it did not come through your works of the law. It was, as Paul says, by hearing the message of salvation and believing it. So the question he poses, the questions he then poses in verses 3 through 6, support that primary question. He's just making the point over and over again in different ways that it is the Spirit that saves. It's the Spirit that gives life. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul asks the Galatians, what role has the Spirit had in your life? And all of the questions he asks them, I think we can ask ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when you heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, was it because any works done by you? Or was it, in fact, the fact that you recognized your own need and mercy? So you believed in the salvation provided for you in Christ. We, like the Galatians, experience the Spirit when we believe in the gospel. So Paul also asks them if they are being perfected in the flesh, rather by the flesh or by the Spirit. Meaning, seeing how it is the Spirit that caused you to be reborn, why would you assume that your active sanctification isn't of the Spirit as well? as if the Spirit could create new life, but then it's up to you to sustain your sanctification and improve yourself through works of the law. Spirit just standing idly by. Now, the Spirit inside of the believer is like fuel of an engine. It not only is the thing that ignites the engine to start, but it is the substance that propels the engine forward. It keeps your car running. Paul is saying that our salvation began with the Spirit, And our sanctification is an ongoing work of the Spirit as well. So why would we rely on our works to make us righteous? That's the pitfall that we normally fall into. We want to become more holy, so we try really hard to be morally good. We get frustrated when we fail. We continue to find sin in our lives. We try to force-feed ourselves sermons and reading plans. We get frustrated when we can't measure our own growth. You want to know why people don't actually grow in those kinds of circumstances? It's because we assume it's our efforts and our discipline that will cause us to grow, as if we can just muscle it, rather than the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of us. So why do you want to grow in godliness, really? Is it because you want to impress others? You want to have a big impact for the kingdom of God? because you're tired of feeling guilty? Or is it because you love God? You love Jesus, and so you want to be more like Him, and you want to spend more time with Him. Is it because you recognize that from you comes nothing but sin apart from His gracious work in you? If we want real growth, we have to recognize that it comes only from God and not from ourselves. But if you treat God as only a means to uh, an end that is selfish, 
then you'll just be trying to sanctify yourself according to the flesh. But if God is both the means by which you sanctify yourself and the end, that communion with Him and glory with Him is the result, then the Spirit will use His Word to prune your heart and produce real lasting fruit. Paul mentions suffering in verse 4. And we're not really sure what kind of uh, suffering the Galatians faced, but persecution during that time would not have been surprising for anyone becoming a Christian. Whatever it is, they must have experienced trials due to their faith in Christ. By asking if it's in vain, he's just pointing out that if they were to abandon the true gospel for a message of faith plus works, then they've face those trials for no reason since they would leave Christ anyway, making his death of no purpose. Paul doesn't think they're actually departing from Christ, and I think we can tell that by the way that he adds, if indeed it was in vain. I think he's just spelling out what would be the case in a hypothetical situation. But his final appeal to the experience of the Christian is to the miraculous works they've already witnessed. Uh, Certainly, those miracles were not done because of the works of the law. It's only by grace that miracles have been done by the Spirit in our lives. The logical conclusion is that we are saved purely by grace through faith in Christ, and therefore, we should continue to rely on Christ and not our own works for sanctification or for growth or for perseverance. So three points of application for you this morning from this text. First, preach the cross vividly to yourself. Preach the cross vividly to yourself. The word Paul uh, used when he said he was uh, portraying Christ crucified to them, it's the word that uh, we get in English for advertisement. And it's just this idea of a billboard. (laughs) Paul in his preaching basically painted a billboard for them of the cross of Christ, meaning if we want to avoid drifting from the gospel, we must regularly advertise the cross to ourselves. One way I would recommend doing this is just to rehearse the gospel uh, through your prayer life. Uh, I try to just pray through the gospels pretty regularly. Uh, That's a remedy to any kind of misappropriation of works in your life whether you're boasting in yourself or wallowing in self-pity. Another good way to rehearse the gospel or to vividly uh, preach the cross to yourself is to read and reread the gospels, the testimony of Christ's life. Read them and know them well. Read good Christian books focused on the cross of Christ or the atonement. The second point of application, preach the cross vividly to others. If salvation comes from hearing and believing, someone must vocally portray the gospel to those who will believe, as Paul did to the Galatians. Christ calls all Christians to make disciples. So we all need to think about ways that we can share the good news of Jesus with those that we love. You don't have to go out and find a pulpit like this one here, but learn how to articulate the gospel and your testimony. One of the ways we try to help equip members to do this is by asking them to share the gospel uh, whenever uh, we do a membership interview. Uh, If someone is coming into membership, 
we want to just make sure that each member knows the gospel and is able to articulate it so they can share the gospel with friends and family members who don't believe in Jesus. Third point of application, take comfort knowing your suffering is not in vain. Take comfort knowing your suffering is not in vain. Whether or not you know the cause of your suffering, God, God promises that he won't waste it. He says that suffering makes us more like Christ. He says it produces endurance, and endurance leads to steadfastness. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And so we can take comfort knowing that the presence of suffering is not due to any kind of malice or ill will from God. We can also take comfort knowing when our faith becomes sight, we experience the what Paul calls the eternal weight of glory. Whatever pain we experience in this life will have been worth it. If, however, we depart the gospel and trust in our own works, our suffering is in vain because righteousness is only reckoned to those who have faith in Christ. Don't be fooled into trusting in works-based righteousness. First, because you have the Spirit. Second, because you have the Scriptures. This is mostly verses 6 through 9, point 2. You have the Scriptures. Paul moves from the Christian experience to an argument from history. He brings up one of the most important figures in Jewish history, the father of the faith and the first patriarch, Abraham. Uh, Of all the examples in history, why do you think Paul would bring up Abraham? It It might surprise you. Abraham is not always the best example to follow. Uh, Multiple times he lies about his wife in order to try to save his own skin. But I think one reason is because uh, being the father of the Jewish people and the first person that uh, God made a covenant with uh, that would lead to the nation of Israel and eventually uh, the producing of a Messiah that would come and save the people, was Abraham was given the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17 as an identity marker for the people, meaning to be a Jew uh, was to be a son of Abraham, to receive that sign of being a part of Abraham's family, and it was to be a child of God, included in the covenant that God made with him. Well, over time, Israel saw not only ethnicity, but obedience to the law as part of what it means to be one of Abraham's sons. But in bringing up Abraham, Paul is pointing out something very important, not from Genesis 17, but two chapters earlier in Genesis 15, which we read earlier in the service. He quotes verse 6, and it's absolutely crucial for our understanding to know how saints in the Old Testament were saved, as well as understanding how people today are saved. Look at verse 6 again in Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's basically saying, how was Abraham counted to be righteous before God? Was it by his works? No, it was through his belief, through his faith. And it's important because Not only is Abraham the head of the covenant, but Genesis 15 happened about 700 years before God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai. And like I said, two chapters before he gave him the sign of circumcision. 
in Genesis 17. Now, this is a, Paul, a point that Paul makes extensively in Romans 4, and I want to read a few verses from it because they so helpfully communicate what he's saying here. Listen to this quote from Romans 4, verses 10 through 12. He says, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be accounted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who walk also in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And then at the end of chapter 4 of Romans, verses 23 and 24, he says this, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is how we know that we cannot make ourselves righteous. It's not the result of works. And it's only something that can be credited or given to us or pronounced by God. It's not as though... Abraham or we are ever actually righteous. But if we have faith in the gospel, the Lord declares us righteous before him on account of Christ's righteousness. It's, a, it's forensic language, it's courtroom language. Uh, so, uh, for example, in the court after someone's bail is paid or a sentence is served, then and only then is a person justified, declared right before the judge. But in our case, before God, the penalty is paid by Christ. And Paul explains the implications of Abraham's faith in verse 7. If Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his faith, then the true sons of Abraham are not ethnic Jews, nor are they simply those that subject themselves to the law. The true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who have the same faith in God as Abraham. When God promised Abraham would have descendants as vast as the stars in Genesis 5, sorry, 15 verse 5, he fulfilled that promise by causing many men and women throughout history to believe in his son Jesus for salvation. Uh, there was a song I grew up singing, perhaps you know it, called Father Abraham. It goes like this, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right on. And then you move through other body parts. I never thought for a, a moment when I was learning or singing that song, uh, there was no conundrum in my mind that there was nothing Jewish about me <laughs> or no kind of uh, connection by descent to Abraham. Uh, but if you read through the Bible, you'll see that sons and daughters of Abraham are those who share in the faith of Abraham. Turns out the theology of that song is actually quite good. It's not just those who have Jewish descent. But what an important truth for the Galatians who had just believed in the gospel. They're young Christians, non-Jews themselves. What an important thing for them to remember as these Jewish influencers are requiring them to follow the law. He restates 
Paul restates his summary argument in verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He was not saved by his works, and neither are we. Therefore, don't rely on works. Rely on God. That's what it means to believe or to have faith. It means to rely or to trust on. Trust in God. Dear friend, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, uh, I have good news for you and I have bad news for you. The bad news is that you can never do anything to earn God's favor, no matter how good you are. Uh, This is a common misconception that people come into the church with. Uh, They think that I have to clean up my life or I have to live a certain way so that God looks at me favorably and accepts me. The bad news is you could never accomplish that. The good news is that God provided a way for you to be accepted and forgiven apart from your efforts. The good news is that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die in your place so that if you trust in Christ and turn from your sin, you can be forgiven and called a son or a daughter of the king. If you've never put your trust in Christ, consider doing that today. If you have questions about what that might look like, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I would love to explain more about that to you. But I want to point out something else that Paul says in this passage that I find incredibly fascinating. It's in verse 8. Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, and he's quoting Genesis 12, verse 3, so even before Genesis 15. He brings this up as evidence that God would save Gentiles by faith and not by works, as well as evidence that Abraham himself was saved by faith. And you might be asking, what does it mean that the gospel was preached to Abraham? Does it mean that Abraham knew about Jesus somehow? Or is Paul saying that the gospel doesn't have to mention Jesus? Well, it's important to remember that we stand in a really privileged place in history. Uh, We have, so accessible to ourselves, more revelation than anyone who preceded us, Uh, more accounts of history, of the promises that God made and the ways that he has fulfilled them in Christ. We know how God fulfilled his promises. So I don't think Abraham knew of Jesus the way we know about Jesus. Clearly, he had not come yet. He didn't have access to a Bible like we do. Scripture hadn't been recorded yet at that point. So he would have to take God's promises on faith. We could say, therefore, that Abraham would look forward in belief in the fulfillment of God's promises. He believed God looking forward, and so God reckoned him as righteous. One author puts it in a really helpful way. He says, He looked to the future for for fulfillment in faith, just as we look to the past for fulfillment in faith. Abraham looked forward to Christ. We look backwards to Christ. The prophets and Abraham included, all the other patriarchs as well, they believed, we could say they believed in Jesus dimly perceived. They believed in the Messiah that God would send. In Abraham's case, he believed in the many descendants, and we know that from the descendants would come a Davidic king who was Christ. The veil was removed, 
at Christ's death, but we still uh, experience or exercise faith, rather, in what we cannot see. Until we die and our faith becomes sight, when we see the very face of Jesus with our own eyes, until then, we see and believe in the gospel through God's word spoken to us, through the scriptures. Did you notice who Paul said preached the gospel to Abraham in verse 8? He said scripture did, which is, again, fascinating. Scripture that hadn't been written down or recorded yet foresaw salvation to the Gentiles and so preached the gospel to Abraham. The word Paul uses here is just the word that we use for Scripture or sometimes writings, but it's clear what he means is the inspiration of the Spirit preached the good news of salvation to Abraham, which he believed, the voice of God. Paul uses Scripture here to show that Abraham was given divine revelation, that within the Scriptures is the divine personality of God, the living character and the communicating being. Paul believed God spoke through the Scriptures, that they are authoritative and communicate deep mysteries of salvation. Friends, that's true of Scripture still today. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture to record the deep mysteries of God's very person. His divine character is manifest and even speaks to us from His Word. For Paul, Scripture was nothing less than the very living voice of God, sufficient to produce saving faith for Abraham and sufficient to produce saving faith for us today. Two brief points of application from these verses. First, study the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. The Christian life is all about uh, remembering and depending on the promises of God. And the best way to do that is to regularly spend time listening to His voice as recorded in Scripture. Hearing and believing is not just something we do when we become Christians at the beginning. It's how we walk by faith day after day. Second point, boast only in the cross of Christ. Boast only in the cross of Christ. Christians should be the most humble people on earth because we recognize our need for grace. Don't be fooled into trusting in works-based righteousness. You have the Spirit and you have the Scriptures. Therefore, trust God. That's the summary message of this text, and uh, I hope this sermon as well. Brothers and sisters, your salvation and your sanctification do not depend on your own works. They depend on Christ alone. We receive the grace poured out to us by His death on the cross, by trusting in His work, relying on the promises made to us, that He will bring what has begun to completion in our hearts, that He will come one day and bring us to Himself, present us blameless without blemish before the throne that He will work out all things for the good of those who love Him. We must trust God and return to the gospel frequently. That's how we can know we've not been bewitched or foolish, and how we can be sure that we're not fooled by our own weaknesses.